Hello and welcome to this podcast mini-series. It has been produced as part of the International Association for Suicide Prevention's 10th Asia-Pacific Conference, which was held in person and virtually from the Gold Coast in May 2022. I'm Dr Jaylee Skeen. I'm a long-time member of IASP and the Director of Every Mind, a leading institute in Australia dedicated to the prevention of mental ill health and the prevention of suicide. EveryMind was really pleased to partner with IASP as the communication sponsor for the conference and to also bring you this podcast series. It was particularly exciting to catch up with colleagues in person from within Australia and across the globe after we've all had such a challenging few years. In this podcast series, you will hear people talk about some of the key topics that were discussed at the Asia-Pacific Conference. This includes things like restricting access to means of suicide, suicide in defence and veterans communities, and workplace suicide prevention. Just a reminder for people that the content presented may cause some impacts for people. If you find the content distressing, please take a break and seek support. You can also find support via the Find a Helpline tool on the IASP website. Thank you so much for listening, and to learn more about EveryMind's work, please visit us at everymind.org.au or you can join us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at EveryMindAU. Welcome, everybody. We're doing a podcast here today from the Workplace Special Interest Group of the International Association of Suicide Prevention. I'm Sally Spencer-Thomas, and I've got two amazing international colleagues here. We're going to do a round of introductions, and then we're going to dive into a conversation about why workplace suicide prevention is essential to our global solutions around suicide prevention. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of the backstory of how I got into this work and why it matters to me, and then I'll I'll turn it over to Jorgen. So I'm a psychologist by training, and I'd been in the field of mental health in various and sundry roles about 16 years, mostly at a university, but partly for a police psychology private practice. I was actually doing leadership development in the time span when this was happening in 2004, when my brother died by suicide. So all of that, that was like the before and after moment in my career where everything started to focus very heavily on what was needed in suicide prevention. And as we looked at the data and we looked at what really great people were doing and well-intended people were trying, it seemed to, to us that there was a big gap. And that was the workplace. The majority of people who died by suicide were, at least in the United States, I'm not as fluent in all the global data, but most of them were working aged males who had one attempt, it was fatal and never reached out to any mental health resources. And so that seemed like a pretty important gap to fill. And so we went on our way to try to figure out how to fill that and nobody was paying attention. So we're going to talk about, you know, as part of this conversation, what some of the challenges and barriers are in this work. But eventually we had some early adopters and then we got some really good national data. And today it's, especially after COVID, it's very much a hot topic across a number of industries. And so I'm very grateful for my colleagues here who had paved the way for us to learn over the United States from the things that they had been doing and learning and have been huge inspirations. So I'll turn it over to Jorgen for a quick intro. Good. Well, I'll describe, I'm, I'm a plumber and, and I'm a suicidologist, and it, it seems to me to be the perfect mix of, uh, of skill sets. I sort of came and got into uh, suicide and suicide prevention a little bit more uh, incrementally. I, I have a lived experience of, of suicide and, and poor mental health, and I sort of um, had a long road of recovery. 
where I worked in the industry and have different roles within my, my industry, being plumbing and construction, where I took on some roles in, in the trade union movement and so on. And through that, I realized that there was perhaps a platform to actually do something around mental health and suicide prevention, which was something that had impacted uh, my life quite significantly and, uh, and the people around me as well. And that led to a situation where we got to focus the industry on suicide prevention and suicide, not suicide prevention, but actually suicide as an issue within the industry and got some research done into it by the, uh, the Australian for Suicide Research and Prevention uh, to highlight the significance of the issue of suicide. And that in turn left to, led to the industry finding some money to try to find the right program to run for the industry and implement it because that was what we had done in the past when we had big issues was to take it on as a all of industry issue. The problem I had was uh, when I looked around, there wasn't really any programs that were suitable for workplace in a sort of plug and play way. And that ended up being, we actually had to create it, create it ourselves. And that's actually where my story with John started. So um, with that, I'll hand over to John. Thank you, Gordon. Yes, I, I don't come out of construction originally, although I've done lots of labouring and whatever. If you have five children, you never have enough money. So Every holidays, I was labouring for somebody to get a bit of extra cash flow, but I come out of the school system. I had 20 years as school principal and supervisor of schools and had dealt with suicide within the school system and the impact that had on families, and but particularly what it had on communities. And I was also a, a football coach, so I'd spent a lot of time with young people and, and knew that young people struggled and if there was someone there to walk with them and get them through, they generally got through. But if there was no support, there was no one keeping an eye for them, then sometimes they didn't. And the impact on that was really interesting on football clubs because it was just a silence. It was dreadful they'd have a memorial match and then there'd be silence. So eventually I left schools where everyone should leave school eventually. It just took me a little while. And I, I had ran a consultancy in, in leadership management and strategic planning, and that's what got me into the construction industry. And I'd been working with the unions and the associations and uh, some of the companies around leadership and leadership principles, not as it applied to mental health, but as it applied to the culture of their business for which mental health was part of it. And when the stuff come out on uh, suicides in the construction industry, uh, Jorgen's arch enemy was my squash partner. And he said, we should get together. And uh, he knew both of us very well. So he worked out where we could have a steak and a bottle of red wine. And, and that was the start of, the, of uh, the work we started to do together around suicide prevention. I came from a, a long background of facilitation and curriculum development and things like that. And knew a little bit about construction industry, but bugger all, really. I, I, that wasn't my strength. And Jorgen knew the industry so well and what would work and what didn't work. And we both had a, a passion for helping men because we've both been broken a bit ourselves during life. And so after a few bumps and, uh, and knocks, we, we worked out a way of working together. And that was about 14, 15 years ago. So, and we're still here. It's good. Yes. And you have a very proven concept that has now been picked up all over the world. So I just love what you two started. And I hope every day you remind yourself, like on the bad days, that you've had such a huge global impact for so many people and, and have been an inspiration to so many of us. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of workplace in general as a large and essential puzzle piece 
and the opportunities that have been overlooked. I alluded to in my introduction when we first got this light bulb that went off, and this was before I, I had met you, like, oh my gosh, it's the workplace. It's missing. They need to be here. And I was like, this is going to take off like wildfire. Everybody's going to be so excited. And, and yeah, there had been workplace well-being or wellness programs, I guess they called it back then, for a long time, probably since the 70s. And they were starting to be like dabbling around workplace mental health programs. But nobody that I could find was really doing a lot of effort in the United States around workplace suicide-specific stuff. And so off we went, like, dun, 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 we're going to go save the world. And psh, it landed flat. Like people, like workplaces were like, suicide. Oh, I don't think so. Like that's, that's a medical issue. Like people need to take that stuff up with their doctors. And I was like, but they're not, and they're here, they're working and they're not in school anymore. And they're not going to healthcare either, but they're here. Maybe you could help. And they'd be like, no. So I think let's talk about the good stories first. What are, what are the things that workplaces can add to the public health approach to suicide prevention, or even the social justice approach to suicide prevention? What are the pieces that they can contribute? Well, I think the, I reckon the first part is really how do you view a workplace? I think that's the key bit. And, and I think that there's this mythology that somehow I have a work life and I have a home life and they're not connected at all. You know, they're, they're separate entities. So, so if you've got personal issues, well, that belongs at home. Work is about your productivity and how you contribute to the economy. And for me, uh, that was a nonsense. I can remember some of our earlier discussions where we said, what if we treated the workplace as a community and said, this is the place where you seem to spend more time than you do at home? And and what if we, we then looked at those things and, and started saying, so what is it about good communities that could also be reflected in good workplaces? And for us, we also looked and said, well, in con construction is driven by liability. They don't do anything unless there's a liability. And so we said, what if we start to look at, at a workplace as a community and look at issues of mental health as safety issues, not as personal issues the workers have brought, have brought to work? And that started to change the conversation. There were lots of people who weren't in favour of having conversations around that. I've got to say that at the start. But some people did. They started to look at their workplaces in a different way. And, of course, what we've done traditionally is if we did suicide prevention training, you do it in the community after hours. And in construction, if you've already done 12 hours work, you get home, you're exhausted. You're not going to go There's anywhere. There's nothing left. No, yeah. nothing left. So what if you actually built capacity into the workplace and then they could take that home to their communities, their families, their churches, their football clubs, their neighbourhood. That seemed to make a whole lot more sense to us. Yeah. So two things are right out of the gate. One is you have a sense of belonging with a group of people that you often develop friendships with, high trust relationships with. And we know so much about that social support component to suicide prevention. But the other piece is like the infrastructure piece. Most workplaces have some, some kind of training something. Even if it's just during orientation and onboarding, they have some kind of training that we can just kind of bake this into. Jorgen, what are some other benefits of, of a workplace uh, I think, to be I think, part I of the solution workplace, here? I think with workplace, we have to be aware that it's a complex dynamic because it is a lot like communities, but it's not totally like communities. 
Other communities we might go to voluntarily. We might come to have a, a sense of egalitarianism between us, even if we have people in elected leadership positions, we are part of actually putting them there. A workplace is two things. It's a group of workers who are together and working on a task, and that gives us that camaraderie and that sort of friendship and all that between us that, that, you, that, that is really that is very real and very useful. On the other hand, you also have a structure, which is an enforced power structure, that almost cut across that at the same time can be useful, but also cut across it in some ways. And those two structures have to be used differently because they're not the same. And I think this is where we can take lessons into suicide prevention around lived experience. That is that when we do interventions, whether we do it in workplaces or whether we do it in communities, the starting point is the community you work with, not all the knowledge you come with as a suicide preventionist. That is almost incidental to the knowledge that sits in the community when you start. Because if you don't do that in the workplace, it's not going to work. Like one of the biggest lessons we have learned from MATE is that in the construction industry, employers can be really good as facilitators of allowing stuff to happen, but not very good at making it happen. Uh, it's a completely different thing. When we ask construction workers, who are the ones you trust the least? They would universally, uh, they, across, we've, we've done the research in mining, we've done it in energy, we've done it in, in, uh, in construction. And all three times, supervisors are the least trusted people in the industry. That does not mean that supervisors are not good, caring people that can be really useful in terms of suicide prevention. It just means that the way we would come at this when we come at this from a hierarchical position or a workplace, your culture position from a, from a top down will not work. So it is that part of, actually, part of actually taking the time to understand the dynamics of the culture we work in before we start talking suicide prevention. Mm, good. Yeah. I know we've, we've chatted about this too. You know, the supervisor relationship is the most high stakes relationship of the whole thing. They're the ones who are going to fire me or give me a raise and a promotion. And I've always got to look good in their eyes. So why would I show them my most vulnerable self unless they were super, super trustworthy or didn't have that kind of authority over me? Yeah, that's ch challenging. It's good people yeah. who do good things, but it's just a way yeah. to set up. Yeah. What are the, some of the other opportunities that workplaces bring that maybe are unique contributions to to suicide prevention or let's open it up to suicide grief support what are some other things that the workplace can add well i think jordan hit on it and that that often work is not voluntary <laughs> you have to do it and we mandate all sorts of things in a workplace and in, in construction particularly around safety and mining and energy are like they're off the scale in terms of safety training and they mandate it you don't get a choice so when you put it within the culture, the structural culture of those industries, you're able to say, and all of us will do this training. Mm. And We've got and, a captive audience to some degree, yeah. yeah. And also, there's a certain amount of capital that's needed to do that. If you're going to take workers off their role to train or to have discussions or whatever it happens to be, there's a cost that goes to the business. And, and while we have always proudly boasted that we don't charge, uh, in actual fact, it does cost. We just don't pay the cost. The, the employer pays the cost. So when you get a business that says, yes, you can, they're already putting money into the game. They're actually putting capital 
towards suicide prevention and, and discussions. Now, they're not stupid either. They also know that if there's a suicide and it closes the site down, they lose a lot more money. So, <laughs> but, but so it makes sense to them. There's a vested interest in doing that if they're open to hear that case. So workplaces are, are really interesting sort of places. The other thing that I love about workplaces is the diversity. You come with a whole range of cultures, of ages, of expertise, of different values. You come with a massive amount of lived experience, but also a massive amount of wisdom around things. And you put them all together in a big bowl and you mix them up. And also, like, I was going to say several different ways that people can participate in a workplace, too. You just don't have to... Mm -hmm be a counselor or even a peer supporter. You can be the communications person or you can, mm-hmm. you know, I, I remember like some of our best participants at the university was a woman from the IT department mm-hmm. and the guys from physical plant who like would change the keys and fix the broken windows because, because they had, they had lived experience. They figured out a unique role that they could play in all of this. So lots of different ways that people can show up for the work too. Yeah. And they also, I think part of it is that you can identify, you don't have to, when you come from the grassroots up, as, as Mates has, you don't have to identify with someone who's within the structure. You can actually identify with the person next to you. Some of our best connectors have been stop-go uh, ladies who, who are out there because everyone walks past them into the site and out of the site. Now, in terms of the, the totem pole, they're right at the bottom. But in terms of, of influence around suicide prevention, they're up near the top. So it can invert some of those relationships, which I love. But, but, but also I think when we do workplaces, that the, the real benefit of doing workplaces is that we have long-term relationships. Even mm-hmm. though like construction workers comes and goes, but they have a long-term relationship with the industry. Other workplaces, you have much more long-term relationship with each other because you tend to stay there for longer. So suicide prevention in a workplace doesn't have to be an event. It doesn't have to be a confined box. It's actually a journey. And you start in one end and you end up somewhere completely different. So when I look at the development of mates uh, over the last 14 years, mates, um, while the core of mates is exactly the same today as it was 14 years ago, the flavor of mates have changed quite significantly because it's much more now about the upstream issues. And when I, when I visited you the other uh, a while a, a few months ago, Sally, when, when I did a, I did a, a, a working minds tea for tea. And some of those people who were there who walked away, it's very similar experiences to what, 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 what I've seen when we do connector and assist training, is the people walk away from there with all their other roles in the workplace as well and pumped. And suddenly they start putting a mental health lens and a suicide lens over those other roles they have. So, oh, um, this is actually how I can be a better supervisor. This is how I can do my diversity role better. Like some of those talks that came there were sort of spine chilling in terms of, you're not spine in a good way. That's spine chilling, mm-hmm. but in a good way, in terms of how people connected mental health and other roles. And that changes the workplace over time. It was interesting. I had, yeah. Yesterday, I was in a place called Toowoomba and uh, I was at a, a factory that that makes doors and windows and things like that. And that that flat out at the moment, we've got a, a boom going on in uh, residential and construction. And 
they're having a barbecue and they invited me in and they said, we've had a massive turnover of staff in the last 18 months so that our connectors, we've got uh, six connectors, but five of them are now in management and that's not okay. We want more connector training for our guys out here on the floor because they can still be connectors, just no one will go to them. <laughs> so let's let's transition now into some of the challenges because this is one like people move on people move up and you know people who may have hardened the game are no longer in an influential role that they were before what are some of the other challenges or barriers that we face when trying to engage the workplace as a as a key stakeholder in more broad suicide prevention efforts i think that this is where we as a sector has to be strategic have to be increasingly strategic around it. I think that there's a a view that mental health and suicide prevention is a nice to have, but not a fundamental part of it. And it is that perhaps we haven't understood well enough the different boxes that businesses work in. And this is one of the things that, 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 you know, I know both of us use the, the triangle in terms of safety, in terms of actually how do we, how do we place mental health and suicide prevention as a safety issue? How do we place mental health and suicide prevention as a HR issue? And when we deal with them, we should deal with mental health and suicide prevention as both types of issues, but they're not the same. They give two different. In the HR, it's a nice to have. It's about culture. It's about improving, whatever. But where where people say safety, you have to have the structures and stuff like that. So I think some of the challenges we have had has been to actually get mental health and suicide into the safety box for much the reason that John started by talking about which was actually about mental health is such a complex issue that some of it comes from home and some of it comes from our childhood and some of it came from, from the drive to work and a little bit of it comes from the workplace. And some and, and worker and employers then say, well, how can I possibly even start dealing with people's mental health? It's just too far an issue. It's and not my lane. I'm a, I make widgets. I, I do this service. That's what yeah. I do. Like, we don't do this. Yeah. yeah. And we have to say to employers, yeah, no, you're I, not responsible for that. You're just responsible for the hazards you create. Right. I think another challenge that we see, especially over here, we're good. I always say we're good 20 years behind you, Australians, but we're making progress. Another issue that I see time and time again is that our narrative around suicide is too limited to only see it as a medicalized mental health issue. And therefore, the only things that can help are treatment, whatever that means, some kind of professional treatment. And so this is a problem in so many ways. One is we don't have enough providers out there. And so that whole thing gets log jammed and then people get frustrated and and hopeless about being able to get any kind of support. But even when they get there, often there's a mismatch between the mental health provider and whatever culture the person's coming in through the door. So we don't have enough culturally resonant mental health things. But beyond that, because that's such a predominant narrative, the only message that gets out there is go seek professional help, go seek professional help. And we lose sight of the fact that there are lots of psychosocial hazards out there that are, we could try to send people to counselors all day if we don't address the psychosocial hazards in work and in our communities, we're still gonna have tons and tons of people in distress and despair. And I know that there's been some keen work over in the UK and, and in Australia, really looking at how do we how do we standardize this or operationalize it? Or how do we talk about psychosocial hazards? What's happening in your worlds around that part of the conversation? I think we're, we're about to have a code of psychosocial hazard come out for our industries, which is one one of the the ways of saying actually your workplace can cause hazards. 
around your mental health and whatever, and you're responsible for that. And and I think yeah, sometimes like it's a little bit of stick and carrot. Um, you need you need a stick to be able to say you cause it, and there's a penalty for that because once again, it's a liability. You deal with it, and that does mean then they start to identify it. But once I think the trap that lives with that is it can just be well, therefore we need a specialist to deal with this, and it's just the clinical model with another face. I think at the bottom of all this, as a base belief, at least for me, and, and some of it came out of the work I did in Africa, where I remember being working in Kampala in Uganda. There was one psychologist for 7 million people. Like, mm-hmm. even if you followed the clinical model, there's no clinic to send them to. <laughs> there, exactly. There's got to be a belief that the community can look after people. The community can do it. And what we need to do then is to build capacity into the community so that they feel confident enough to do what needs to happen. Because even if you go to clinician, what do you get, 45 minutes an hour? Mm -hmm. You might get a packet of pills. Who looks after you after that? If it's not the community and the family, who does that? And so unless we actually believe that the riches, the gold lives in the community and not in some high-rise building with people in suits and white jackets, we'll simply be changing the names of the clinicians but not empowering the community. And for me, why mates has worked is that we've actually built capacity into the community and that has all sorts of swings that come off that. But if we don't believe that, we'll just... We'll just dress it up and give it another name. Mm-hmm. But I think that's actually where where workplace can help the sector mm-hmm. understand this better because if we start looking at mental health and suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue, and that's what's coming up through the psychosocial codes and all those mm-hmm. kind of things, it's a far, like mental health is the fastest growing compensatable injury in the workers' compensation mm-hmm. systems. It's, it's a big issue. It's expensive. And there's, so there's good reasons to look at it like that. When we comment from a workplace health and safety angle we automatically do prevention and we do prevention as far away from the person as we practically can it is a little bit like saying the way to deal with asbestos is to get more lung specialists we have long time work out the way to deal with asbestos was to get asbestos out of the workplace and make sure people didn't get exposed to it but that is really the approach that we are taking so when we deal with it with with mental health in the community we often deal with it at the sharp end and which is actually at the connection point Whereas when we deal with this uh, at a workplace level, if we can get it placed as a workplace health and safety issue, we automatically goes into how do we actually change the environment? How do we change the culture? How do we change the way we interact with each other? Which I think that suicide prevention can actually learn from and, and develop from mm. if, you, if you looked at that broader than, than just workplaces. And we've also done a lot around workplace safety culture. Like we've done a massive amount on safety culture in construction. I remember even, I think Jorgen mentioned a few years ago that he, he was going past a housing development and he saw scaffolds on the roof. Unheard of. <laughs> we, we can actually do amazing stuff because we're really good at changing culture around safety. So we actually have the ability to integrate our learnings across. If I oh, look at great. the sites I worked at in 1988 and I look at the work sites I'm visiting now, you would not recognise them in terms of safety. You would not recognise them at all. Like safety had moved so far, nobody thinks that we are at the end yet, but safety have moved so far. Mm-hmm. 
So we have actually changed fundamentally just the way we deal with each other, the way we go to work, the way we organize our gear, the way we get to heart. And all. We can do the same with mental health. Mm. Mm. Let's shift our conversation a little now to the special interest group of yeah. uh, the International Association of Suicide Prevention. I have recently recruited, you're going to be my <laughs> co-chair, yep. <laughs> uh, and we just saw each other twice over the last uh, three months, once uh, for me to come over there for the uh, Asia Pacific Conference. And then he came over here and was a keynote speaker at our inaugural Construction Working Mind Summit. So it was a very exciting couple of months. But I'm, you know, I'm thinking back to the meeting that we had with our special interest group. And, and really, the people who come into that group are a cross-section of researchers, to some degree, clinicians, many of them in employee assistance programs, program advocates like the three of us, you know, we cross all three, but, you know, people, all kinds of different roles, all kinds of industries, sizes, countries. It's a really rich and exciting group. And one of the first takeaways that we had, uh, which is where we're getting to in this conversation, is that the workplace is important, not only because it is a place that we can convene people to build awareness, build skills, build strategy for suicide prevention, but also because... It is a root cause often for suicidal despair and overwhelming distress. And so we can we can hit our work in both those situations. I know we've been talking a lot about construction because all three of us work in construction and that's because construction rocks and was the first industry to lean in hard. And now that's filtered out into mining and energy. First responders have also been uh, working on this, veterans, healthcare, all kinds of different industries. So that's really exciting. Can you talk a little bit about how our special interest group is really doing that cross-sectional, cross-industry learning so that all boats start to rise? Oh, that's an easy one. (laughs) And I think this has been uh, what we are trying to do in the interest group, and it's probably a continuation of, it's been not a difficult decision for me to, Although it took a little bit of a while to just make sure I could commit the time, but uh, to actually to, to get on board as a co-chair because it's been it's this idea that we actually need to work across across our traditional roles. We need to have a place where we meet as uh, lived experience, as program advocates, as researchers, and work out how do we find a common language about this and how do we actually get get together at a place where there's an equality between us. Uh, because quite often, when you when you come out of this as a plumber and you talk to somebody who can both read and write, you are awfully impressed and you can almost be awestruck and you don't, and, and you sort of, but you actually have to have the arrogance to come up and say, but you don't know about construction. You don't know about my life. You don't know about where I'm coming from. And until you listen, you're not going to do a deal with me. I think that perhaps some of the stuff we can do with the interest group is actually bring people together and help each other understand each other a little bit better. So when researchers go into workplaces, they understand there's certain dynamics, there's certain ways to, to approach them and so on. So I think that's perhaps some of the work that is really the benefit of having a, a, a place like that in, in an international regime where we can come together and have... The, now, I, th- I still think that we've got a lot of work to do. It's sort of a developing uh, field and, and and it's all about we're trying to do that while we're having full-time jobs at the side. But I, th- I think there's really a place for it as an important piece of work because uh, you've been onto this much longer than I have, Sally. What's your view on it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what started to happen, and again, Canada, Australia, you've led the way, was we needed some some things that people could grab onto, handholds from wherever they were coming in from, 
large companies, small companies, public sector, private sector, all kinds of industries where they could find handholds of best practices that they could start something without feeling like they could start from scratch. And so when Australia came out with the position statement that is now evolved into something much more sophisticated, Canada's had their standards for psychological safety in the workplace now for over a decade. That gave people a pathway that no matter where they were in terms of their organization description, they knew, like in the United States, we, we launched our national guidelines in 2019. Now we're developing a certification program. You know, it you can adapt the, the practice, but the practice is you need a training program. You need a communication strategy. You need a mental health emergency plan. You know, you need to know what your resources are. Like we've got buckets of practices that people can build upon across all kinds of industry. And I think that starts starts to be the inflection point yes. between lots of grassroots activities that's happening organically where, where people have been touched and impacted to really kind of raising the bar about what's possible. Don, what have you seen? I think for me, I look at it as really simply. I think if, if we want stuff to happen, the simpler it is and the easier to use, the better. So if, 